This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Welcome to Talking Halos. This is Derek Ciapala on another episode of the show. I promised you guys a White Sox preview, but I got to tell you flat out, it went much deeper than that. It went into all kinds of things in White Sox history. It went back to 2005 ALCS. It went everywhere, and we got knee-deep actually into the economics of baseball, the value of your market, and so on. So a great conversation with Josh Nelson. That's right, Josh Nelson from Sox Machine. Had a really fun time with him. Man, I love a good baseball conversation. It's a, I promise you it's well worth the listen. Also, but before we get in there, I want to say we just got started here as a podcast. We're only four months old. We have done great things during that time frame. And if you like what we're doing, we really appreciate you heading over to iTunes, Apple Music, and leaving that five-star review. We really appreciate it. Also, if it's one of those things where you like our podcast, but you want us to earn that five-star review. That's fine, too. Email us at talkinghalesgmail.com and give us your feedback. If you're a new listener enjoying the show, do us a favor. Please text a fellow Angels fan. Let them know about our podcast. Let them know uh, what we're all about. If you're going to a game, hey, share us out. We'd really appreciate it. Really, Seriously, it means the world to us. We've had some great listeners so far. We've had a lot of people interacting with us on, on Facebook and on Twitter, and it really means the world. So really quick. Just a quick, quick note before we get to the interview. I want to talk about one thing. Patrick Sandoval last night is pulled after three and third innings. And, well, social media erupted. It was all over the place in terms of Alex Smith is pulling this guy. What's wrong with the Angels? They should let him pitch and so on and so forth. And you kind of find it later on. It was all It's all part of the plan, the pitch count. He had between 50 and 60 pitches. They let him go. He had a nice performance. They pulled him after three and third innings. The thing is this, folks. If you think... The Angels are going to mess with their arms at this point. You've lost your mind. And I don't mean this in a kind of derogatory or disrespectful way to you if, you've, if you're complaining about it. Look at our history in the last two, three, four, five years of arm troubles with guys who we thought would be there and aren't and had all kinds of problems. Andrew Haynes had his surgeries. Tyler Skaggs did before we lost him. C.J. Wilson, his career ended 
with a rotator cuff injury. There's just so many different people and individuals out there you can see where you need to protect these arms. A pitcher's arm only has so many bullets in the tank. It's just the fact of the matter. And it is with pitchers throwing 99 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, and so on and so forth, you are going to see more and more pitchers breaking down. It's just the bottom line. They just made the right call earlier this year to, to shut down Griffin Canning. They then turned around and limited pitches for other pitchers as well. They're making a good decision here. The, t- the time is not now to build endurance in Patrick Sandoval. The time is in spring training in the early parts of the season. That's when you build your endurance. That is when you try and get them going deeper, deeper in games. You don't do it now as you're heading towards the end of the year. What do you, what do you want to do with him now? Seriously, what do you want to do? Risk an arm injury? Is that what you want to do? I'm just saying, I, for, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I am more than willing to have that debate with you. Send us some feedback at talkinghills.gmail.com. Let's have that discussion. I'm willing to talk with you about it on Twitter as well. You can hit me up on at the DC Apollo tag or at the main Talking Halos tag, and we can talk about it. But the reality is this. The Angels have a different objective right now than they do in April. Right now, the objective is to see as many arms in their system as possible. So you have your 40-man roster. You want to see... Every pitcher on that roster, you need to evaluate who's coming back next year, who you might need to deal, who you might need to send back down. That's what you need to do. You don't need to worry about getting nine innings out of somebody at this point. It's not about winning right now. No, right now, it's about 2020. It'd be nice if they won. It'd be nice to get to 500. They're not going to. Not with the schedule they have. But you can evaluate. And you can protect this man's arm. And you can get him out of the game. He pitched very well. You can get him out of the game now, with his, with his head held high, confidence booming, he did very well against major league hitters. Very good hitters, by the way. Very good hitters in Oakland. So, what's the problem? Now's the time to complain about it. If you want to complain about the Angels pulling Andrew Heaney for, at some point, or Skaggs or Lemire, or even Griffin King at some point, so you're fine, you do that, but now's not the time. We're beyond that. That's not the goal. The goal is not to get these guys eight innings. The goal is to actually get as many people work as possible so you can evaluate. So let's relax. Take it easy. Okay, we're looking for sponsors. So reach out to us at talkinghills at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing and want to help us keep the lights on, you can also leave a voicemail at 657-666-5453. And now, here we go. Here's our discussion with Josh Nelson from the Sox Machine. Check it out. All right, folks, I'm here with Josh Nelson from the Sox Machine. And this is our second visit this year. Great talking to him last time. Gave me some real good insight on the White Sox, this young team that's up and coming with prospects. And now here we are with a turn visit, and this time the Angels are in Chicago. Josh, how you doing, man? I am doing well. How are you? Uh, dude, I am thrilled to be here. I know the Angels aren't that great right now, but we're starting to get a look at some prospects. We're going to look at some young guys. And that's actually leading you right to the first question for you. Last time we talked, you went through a whole list of players that you're looking forward to seeing progress throughout the entire year. Like you've seen them from start to finish. Now you got more coming up. Who are the young guys that came up for September? Well, for the White Sox, the notable is Zach Collins. He's a catcher who may not actually be a full-time catcher, Derek, uh, in the major leagues. He's going to see some time at first base. He's going to see some time at DH. He's the Chicago White Sox 2016 first-round pick. He was drafted 10th overall. And he had had played some games in June and July, but it wasn't a lot of playing time. As Wellington Castillo, the primary backup catcher to James McCann, was on the injured list. 
And he got his cup of coffee. He got a little taste. The White Sox gave him instructions on what they'd like to see him do better at the plate. Because uh, he has a great wealth of power, and he's mm-hmm. got a very good batter's eye. He takes a lot of walks, but he was still racking up a lot of strikeouts and not making the best contact. And when he went back to AAA, he fared much better. And he looks much different uh, in this in his first series since the call-ups against the Cleveland Indians. So he he is by far the most notable prospect for the White Sox that's been called up. Uh, Danny Mendick is a nice little success story. He was drafted in the 28th round, uh, and he's just one of those organizational guys that continued to get better in A-ball and double-A and this year in triple-A. And the White Sox are giving Danny Mendick an opportunity. But then the other names are just familiar faces. Dylan Covey, who's going to be starting Saturday for the White Sox against the Angels, is back up. And Daniel Polka, which Daniel Polka is flirting with history. He only has one hit this year through his first 50 plate appearances. And there is an opportunity for him that if he does not rack up another hit and he continues to get starts, that Daniel Polka may have the worst batting average of all time uh, for someone even having, let's say, 75 or even 100 plate appearances because I think their Major League Baseball mm-hmm. record is like point zero two zero. So he's flirting with history, but that's the, the major calls for the White Sox. The news is more who they didn't call up, and they oh. did not call up Luis Robert, and they did not call up Nick Magical. And Luis Robert was just named Player of the Year, Minor League Player of the Year by USA Today. He was named Best Bat by MLBPipeline.com. And Luis Robert had a tremendous season, and the reason why he is not with the White Sox is purely service time manipulation. The whole goal now for the White Sox, they're struggling. We're familiar with that. It's been a tough year. I've been so impressed with the prospects you guys have put together. What is this goal now for September? What are you trying to evaluate if you were the Sox manager? What do you know about how the organization is moving forward with this call-up period and how they want to proceed? That's the great question in Chicago. It doesn't matter if you're listening to our show, if you're listening to us when we're doing radio segments, or you're listening to other sports talk radio in the city when they're talking about the White Sox. Even when you're asking Rick Hahn, the general manager, he seems very noncommittal. When asked what were the White Sox plans, were they going to be a competitive team in 2020 to possibly win the American League Central Division, he said, ask me when we're in Glendale which means ask me in spring training. And that doesn't seem that does that doesn't sound like a general manager that's 100% confident that they're ready yet to compete for a divisional title. And it doesn't necessarily sound like a general manager that's planning to make some big splashes this upcoming offseason in free agency or via trades to help boost the roster to give the White Sox a better opportunity. So I think for the White Sox core I mean, we will see Luis Roberts early in 2020. He'll take care of center field. And you got Aloy Jimenez, and you got Tim Anderson, uh, who currently is tied with DJ LeMayhew for the league lead in batting average in the American League. Yuan uh, Makata is having a great year. Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and Dylan Cease are pitching better. You, you start looking at the young players that have reached the majors, and you can see where the White Sox have developed a core. And it is a core that could produce a winning team. But then you look at the rest of the roster, and it's very stars and scrubs. 
where everyone else in the 25-man roster probably shouldn't be playing in the major leagues, and they're well below average players that are mixed with this new exciting core. So there's a lot of questions that the White Sox front office has to address, and they actually need to do the walk, uh, the walk, the walk, instead of talking about making plans, they actually have to go out and sign people uh, that are notable. Uh, maybe going after someone like Nicholas Castellanos, who's having a great second half with the Chicago Cubs, as the White Sox have a need in right field. I don't think they're going to get Garrett Cole, but Zach Wheeler could be a nice addition for the White Sox in the offseason. Those are the types of splashes, Derek, that the White Sox are going to need to make in the offseason to give people in Chicago faith that, yes, they can make this transition from rebuilder to contender next season. So I'm going to paint a little picture here just to try and get an understanding here. On our side, we've had Billy Upler. He's been in charge since October 2015. And we have a, a fan base that's right now just split hardcore on him. Some people love him. Some people hate him. And the argument that I've taken is, listen, we've known the plan from the day he was hired. The idea was you have to rebuild in the fly because you're not going to trade Trout. They're going to work through the draft. They're going to rebuild an organization that was completely bereft of talent below the major league level. And piece by piece, start getting guys in to eventually compete. We've known this plan for a long time. They weren't going to go out there and sign a lot of big name free agents in 2016, 2017, because there was no point to it. You weren't going to to have anybody to back them up. So you're going to spend a bunch of money on people then instead of later on when you're ready to compete. So here we are going into the Austin 2020, and we think we have a general idea of what the Angels are going to try and do, which is go after pitching. Go hard to Garrett Cole and see if you can get him. Go after a guy like Wheeler, like you're mentioning. But on the flip side... What I'm hearing from you is you aren't sure what the plan is. Like, we've known for five years what the plan has been. But on your side, it doesn't seem like you guys really know. Well, we did know until the last couple of months where Rick Hahn is starting to change his tune. We thought when they put the plans in place, when they traded Chris Sale during the winter meetings back in December of 2016 – that they that 2017 was going to be more of a teardown. Find a suitor for Jose Quintana, which they did, and they got Aloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease from the Chicago Cubs. They traded away their bigger contracts when they moved Todd Frazier and David Robertson to the New York Yankees. Last year, it was just a, a mixture of the young guys trying to find their footing and just quadruple A type of players. And we knew that 2019 was going to be more of the same, but it was going to feature even more prospects uh, where we got to chance to see Aloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease this year. And the previous year was the first full season for Yoan Makata and Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez. So the waves of talent have been coming in. And now with everyone finding their footing, the thought was, okay, in 2020, uh, the White Sox can be a dark horse team. They could be someone uh, that can win more than 81 games. It would be their first winning season since 2012. Uh, and 2021 is re- when they're really going to hit their stride, that this is the team that most definitely could be considered a favorite to win the American League Central as the new, as the Cleveland Indians start losing guys, uh, as they start hitting free agency, players like Francisco Lindor uh, and even the Minnesota Twins as well would lose some key players on their roster. But again, Rick Hahn goes on a podcast with NBC Sports Chicago and says if this rebuild 
turns the corner, whether it's 2020 or 2021 or whenever this run begins. And that answer really rubbed folks the wrong way in Chicago because, again, the White Sox general manager is very noncommittal on the team's chances next year and is not committing to a season when we can expect a turnaround. So I, I, I understand from your perspective from the Angels fans uh, with with uh, General Manager Epler that there's a plan in place, you know what the plan was, and now this is how it's going to unfold. For the White Sox perspective, we thought we understood what the plan was. Now it's time to go and be active as they're going to have the lowest committed payroll in Major League Baseball at just $23 million heading into this offseason. But it does not sound like the front office is very excited about this free agency class or their chances of signing the top free agents. And we don't know what type of investments they're going to make to help this team moving forward. So there's just a a lot hanging in the air right now, and there's some uncertainty on what exactly Rick Kahn and the Chicago White Sox front office are going to do for next year. Is it possible that Hahn is being evasive on this because he's not getting enough director from the folks above on how much they're going to spend and so on and so forth? That very well could be the case. I mean, his two bosses are Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf. And Jerry Reinsdorf has been notoriously cheap when it comes to free agency. Uh, He used to be one of the big spenders in Major Mm -hmm. League Baseball. If you look at team payrolls in the mid-2000s, the the White Sox carried a a top-10 payroll. But that was when he was comfortable. He's always been comfortable carrying a $120 million payroll. And back in 2005, a $120 million payroll was a top 10 payroll in baseball. Today, it's a bottom 10 payroll, as the Major League Baseball average payroll is about $145 million. So the White Sox have not grown with the times. And that's another problem with the White Sox front office. They seem to be well behind the curve compared to other franchises in Major League Baseball. So we can't get get a good tell if Rick Hahn is being handcuffed by Jerry Reinsdorf and the minority owners on how much money that he can truly spend. We just know what the team and the franchise was comfortable spending a decade ago. And we know that they have the lowest committed payroll going into the offseason. So everyone else, as far as media and fans, are putting the two to two together and saying that, hey, the White Sox could easily add 60 to $80 million in payroll and still be sitting pretty, still have a bottom 10 payroll, but it would greatly enhance the roster for the upcoming 2020 and 2021 seasons. So I'm not sure if he's being purposely evasive, but I know through the whole Manny Machado saga that they got grilled, and they're still getting grilled, and they will always get grilled for not landing Manny Machado and how everything unfolded and how at the last minute the San Diego Padres came in and signed him away from the White Sox. When the White Sox were trying to convince everyone that they thought an eight-year, $250 million deal was in some ways better than San Diego's 10-year, $300 million deal. Uh, So I don't know if he's being evasive, Derek, but uh, I can – see that point and as i go through this explanation and i'm rambling a little bit there's just a yeah. lot of things that are working 
just, just a lot of things in motion for the White Sox front office. And I'm hoping I paint a picture for Angels fans that are scratching their head and wondering about the White Sox. Well, I think it seems pretty clear that they're ready to make the transition. Uh, it, it's really foggy right now with the White Sox situation. What blows my mind is you have the number three market in the country in terms of <laughs> size. You even if even though you share this the city with the Cubs, and it's a team that to me showed in 2005 that could be. A championship franchise, and yet here you are talking about a, a, a salary that's a payroll that is in the bottom ten of the league, and it's been that way for a while. I mean, I, it blows mm-hmm. my mind that you that you have a team out there that should be competing for the big dogs every single year. They they have the the resources in that market, and yet here we are talking about a rebuild and wondering whether or not your owner will loosen the tight string, the yeah, payroll strings. The White Sox are ran more closely to the Milwaukee Brewers than they are to the Chicago Cubs. And there has always been the thought, and maybe it's a conspiracy theory, but Jerry Reinsdorf wants to prove that you can win baseball games by not having to spend a lot of money. That you can win World Series and you can beat the Yankees of the world without having to spend $200 million or carry $200 million payrolls, that you could do it on $120 million. And if you look at the American League Central, my conspiracy theory is that I think, I wonder the owners of all five franchises recently agreed that nobody carries a payroll of more than $125 million because uh, none of the franchises have a payroll that high. Even the Detroit Tigers used to carry a massive payroll. As mm-hmm. uh, Mike Illich did not care about his money because he knew he didn't have many years left of his life, and he wanted Detroit to have another World Series winner, so he did whatever he could to keep the stars that they groomed and even sign key free agents to make them one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. Dave Dombrowski just could not build a good enough bullpen for the Tigers uh, to make that dream come true. But ever since Mike Illich has passed away and his son has taken over the team, well, his son seems like he's more thrifty than his dad. And I don't see the Tigers being big spenders as well. So it's just a matter of divisional environment. I think that plays a factor. Uh, And I I think with Jerry Reinstorf throughout his entire tenure as the owner of the Chicago White Sox, and again, he's been the owner since 1981, he's always sided more with the small market teams than the large market teams. And often, often I think – he forgets that he's actually in Chicago and he should probably act as one of the big boys rather than try to be the big fish in the small pond and be an ally closer to the small market teams. See, that makes absolutely no economic sense whatsoever. If you're in for cash, straight cash, then you would think you would use the fact you're in this large market to invest in it in the hopes of building that perennial winner that will bring in the cash later on. Instead, you're just selling, hey, you know, we're going to try it this way, and it may or may not work. The Royals did it once. Good for them. But overall, you're not seeing this number of low payroll World Series winners every year. People have to spend money to, to get things done, especially when you need that one key free agent who can take you over the top. It makes no sense to me. None whatsoever. Blows my mind. Well, you know, that's what it's like being a White Sox fan. <laughs> uh 
Now, on the flip side, Jerry Reinsdorf owns the Chicago Bulls. And <laughs> lately, they have been taking on that mindset. And they're not going after the premier free agents in the basketball offseason. And, of course, the, the Chicago Bulls are a storied franchise. They're one of the top sports global brands. Uh, and they rake in a lot of money. And both the White Sox and the Bulls make a lot of profit. I know people within the business of the White Sox. The White Sox have no debt. So when Jerry Reinsdorf passes away, they're going to be a very attractive franchise for a billionaire to purchase them uh, because it is. you can look at the White Sox as a Xerox printer, and it prints cash. Uh, there is no Miami Marlins type of debt whatsoever. The stadium is being leased to the White Sox that the state is paying for. And as long as they're not drawing 2 million fans, the White Sox don't pay rent on the stadium. Uh, so, yeah, the White Sox, business-wise, they make really good decisions for themselves to have the best profit margins as possible uh, for the revenue that they are able to draw in. But again, it all boils down to, for the White Sox, if they're going to be successful with their rebuild, is that do they have ownership buy-in to be aggressive in this offseason? And I circle back, and that's why I keep saying the situation is foggy on the south side. There doesn't seem like it is a clear direction or as clear as we once thought when the rebuild began. Now, looking to this weekend, that's just a fascinating conversation, and one day I hope to pick it back up with you, especially after the winter break. Um, I really want to go back to that one day. Looking this weekend, Dylan Covey. I mean, we've, we've talked about the other guys in our last series, but we didn't talk about Covey this time. What should we expect from him on the mound on Saturday? What you should expect is that if you're playing DraftKings, you immediately pick Mike Trout. And you just stack Angels hitters against Dylan Covey. Uh, Dylan Covey is a sinker ball pitcher in which his two-seamer is not sinking all that much. There might be a major league pitcher in Dylan Covey. We think it's a major league arm because he can hit 95 miles per hour. Like He has good fastball velocity, but he doesn't have a good breaking pitch. He really doesn't have much of a changeup. And everyone is moving away from the two-seamer these days and wanting to go more four-seam slider or four-seam curveball for better tunneling. And Dylan Covey has been burned before on opposing teams thinking that he's tipping pitches and they've been very successful against Covey. And he's got already had two starts this season for the White Sox in which he was not able to get through the first inning just because of how poorly that he pitched. So for Angels fans, you should be licking your lips and the Angels hitters should be looking to feast against Dylan Covey because he's not very good. He's definitely not a starting pitcher, and I'm expecting a big night, especially for someone like Mike Trout. I mean, in fairness, he did go six innings against the Indians back in May. I'm just saying, you know. Well, that was May, and I do remember <laughs> that start. But sometimes he can surprise you, but more times than not, especially when he goes through – the second time and third time through the order, it can get ugly. It can get very, very ugly. Like, Dylan Covey should not ever face a lineup a third time. So, basically, he's more of a fit for a long relief role, if anything, not as a starting pitcher. Yeah, and, you know, he could even be an opener. He can be someone that if he, if he knows he's only going to throw two innings, 
maybe he can get another boost in velocity where he can hit 96, 97 miles per hour. And you can pair him up with maybe, like, let's say a left-handed starter that has a below-average fastball, let's say 91, 92, uh, and they throw more soft. So you have someone that brings a lot of velocity in the beginning, and then you back him up with someone that throws more soft pitches trying to induce weaker contact uh, to last three to four innings. I think that could be a possible role for Dylan Covey, but the White Sox do not buy into the opener uh, as far as philosophy that other teams are using in Major League Baseball, like the Rays and the New York Yankees, they believe that starting pitchers should always try to get through at least five innings, and they will continue to be that way as long as Don Cooper is the pitching coach for the Chicago White Sox. So, like I said, I mean, Dylan Covey may have a Major League arm, and I'm sure if he were to ever find himself in the Houston Astros, maybe they could fix him, and he'd be a very good reliever. But with him starting the game on Saturday, I'm not having high expectations. My lord, he's six and twenty-eight in his career. Jeez. But yeah, in fairness, the Angels always seem to struggle against those guys you think they should dominate. And it's been that way for twenty years. But this, <laughs> that's their amount. Before we go, I want to get into one thing here because it's just uh, it's on my mind. 2005 ALCS. That was a, uh, a Are you devastating sure about blow. This? Well, you know. I'm fair. You know, I, I look back at that series, and I think the White Sox were clearly the better team. That was not the Angels' year. But I go back to Game 2, and <laughs> an objective take years later, an objective take years later, what was the right call that day, and where did it go wrong? Well, I think my objective take is that, you know, Josh Paul, I thought, caught the ball. And I think... If that was the original call on the field, the home plate umpire stuck with the call. If we had instant replay in 2005, I still think A.J. Przinski would strike out, and that would be the end of the inning. Uh, You know, heads-up play by A.J. Przinski just to run to first base because it created chaos. And this is, you know, the problem with human umpires as, you know, the very good ones always remain calm no matter how tense the situation. And I just think it got out of hand for the umpires in the field that he runs to first base. And then all of a sudden the home plate umpire who obviously would not have the best look, right? They're going based off sound, whether or not the ball hit the ground, then goes ahead and, you know, meets with the other umpires. Hey, did the ball hit the ground? I mean, is this a drop third strike? And then decide to change the call to a drop third strike. And then Pablo Zuna steals second base. Joe Creedy hits it off the wall. And the White Sox win game two. Uh, so, yeah, it, I think it did change the momentum of the American League Championship Series because if the Angels leave Chicago up two games to nothing, I don't know if the White Sox have the same type of success in games three, four, and five that they did in Anaheim. Uh, if they did, then, you know, the series doesn't end in five games. It goes back to Chicago for game six as the White Sox are up three games to two. But I think that particular play is why we have instant replay today in Major League Baseball. And I hope we do not come across that type of situation again in the postseason. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I hope that Major League Baseball and the review umpires they have in New York 
uh, will be able to avoid a similar fate on that day because I just remember just the mass chaos and even the Chicago Tribune the very next day we're trying to do it by still photo of like frame by frame by frame on that pitch as it got closer to the ground and whether or not did Josh Paul drop it. Uh, but my objective take is I thought Josh Paul caught it and it was just a bad job by the home plate umpire and the umpires in the field just being uh, just sticking with their original call and, and not flip flopping on the call and just having the confidence that they had the call right the first time. So, A, I appreciate the integrity there instead of being the homer because I saw the same thing. I saw him catch the ball. And, um, you know, I can also go back and say, you know what, we can be mad about it. We can be mad about game two, but the White Sox were a hell of a team that year. They, they were they were the best team in baseball. They were going to win that series anyways. But I don't. I mean, I would think that White Sox fans and Angels fans alike would like to look back on that series all these years later and think you don't want anything tainted. You don't want anybody to be able to say, "Well, the White Sox got over on the Angels because of this bad call." You don't want anything tainted, and so. That's a shame. It's a shame that we can we have to go back years later and talk about it because, well, one, we didn't have to, but I wanted to because I wanted to get your take on it. But people will go back and talk about it. I look. I remember that day, and I think, man, what a horrible job by the umpiring crew. What a horrible job allowing that game and at that very moment to get out of control and allowing that moment to change everything. Because they called them out to begin with. And uh, years later, we see that it has affected the game. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I just think in game two, though, the Angels were having a very difficult time with Mark Burley. I mean, Mark Burley pitched a complete game. He only threw 99 pitches Mm -hmm. uh, for his complete game. That's the thing I think baseball historians will remember and something that uh, I don't think will ever be duplicated is that the White Sox had four consecutive complete games thrown in games two, three, four, and five. We're not going to see that again. Just because on the way that teams manage their pitchers today in the postseason, on how every manager, as soon as a starting pitcher has the first sight of trouble, they're going to go straight to the bullpen. Uh, They're not going to allow their starting pitchers to face a lineup a third time or even a fourth time in a postseason game. But in the 2005 American League Championship Series, the fact that the White Sox had four consecutive complete games, uh, that's not going to be duplicated again. I tend to agree, although I do believe, given the right staff, it could happen. I'm not saying it will happen because I tend to agree with you. I look at how Houston does things, for example, and just you know, with that staff they have there, I'm saying, perfect storm, I could see it happen. I remember the Angels just could not hit anybody that series, especially a guy like Mark Burley, who wasn't a hard thrower. They've, man, they've traditionally just never hit, well, softy, <laughs> soft throwers. They've never hit a well at all. And so I can go back and think there's, there was never really a doubt as to how this series was going to go. Of course, going in, I thought differently. But hindsight being 2020, the pitching was just, man, it was unbelievable. That, that White Sox team, pitching-wise, was that's the kind of pitching I miss today. I miss that kind of dominance. We only see it in a team like the Astros, and we only really ever see it in big game situations. It's just rare. Like you're, you're talking about for us, last night we see Brad Austin's pitching, you know, pulling our pitcher out in three and a third innings. Mm-hmm. I mean, and 
this time they had a plan. I mean, they're they're watching this kid's pitches. They're they're not trying to build some endurance up now. That's for next year. They're trying to you know just get him in some innings and get him some some hitters. But throughout the year, he's that's, that's been it's been getting to the third the third way through. The Angels once get to the third way through the lineup, give up about an, an average of three twenty. Last I checked. Yeah. To, and so they just go by the numbers and they pull them out of there. So now you have a, a bullpen that's a train wreck. It's just uh, I can go back to 1988, 1989, 1990, Tony La Russa, the A's, when you started seeing this specialization. Now we're getting to the point where specialization is getting into the fifth and sixth inning. Yeah, and every team's looking for their Nathan Uvalde, right? Mm-hmm. When the Red Sox won the World Series, Uvalde would come in, and I mean, he threw nine innings in one of the games <laughs> against the Dodgers, even though it was out of the bullpen, right? there. Or every team wants their Josh Hader, like the Milwaukee Brewers have, where you do have these relievers, and they come in to throw three or four, in- four innings, uh yeah, it's just that the, the way that the postseason teams and on how those games are played out now with the pitching staffs, I, I just and I'm looking through all these box scores and you know the Angels offense in this series looking back, they just had a difficult time with Mark Burley and John Garland and Freddie Garcia and Jose Contreras. They couldn't just generate any offense. And now as you mentioned with the specialization and with T Top and trying to avoid pitchers facing a lineup a third time uh, through the order, especially in postseason games. That's why I'm just a firm believer that we're not going to see four straight complete games of the postseason again. And that that was an incredibly rare and special feat that the White Sox were able to accomplish in that American League Championship Series. All right, man. So just real quick here, make the call. How do you see this weekend series going? All right, I do see the White Sox winning two out of three in this series. I know that Angels fans don't really want to hear that. Uh, however, Lucas Giolito has been terrific. Angels fans found that out when he pitched really well in Anaheim. I don't expect the start on Saturday to go well for the White Sox with Dylan Covey and Andrew Heaney. pitched very well against the White Sox the last time out. And then on Sunday, Dylan Cease made some incredible adjustments against the Cleveland Indians. He struck out 11 back in his last start so if those adjustments continue with him going into sunday i think that will give the white Sox the edge they'll win on friday they'll win on sunday but i do expect the angels to win on saturday there you go i'm actually with you same prediction so can let people know where they can find you and your podcast yeah, you can read everything that we do covering the Chicago White Sox at SoxMachine.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. And if you want to follow me, I'm at SoxMachine underscore Josh. All right. Well, thanks so much for everything and taking time to come out. And, uh, folks will know I actually made the call to ask you to come on earlier <laughs> today mm-hmm. because of uh, stuff going on at home. And I just thank you for taking that time to come on and talk some baseball all across the board. Great baseball conversation about about payroll and building a franchise. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Should be a fun series. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Have a great one. All right. I agree two out of three for the White Sox. I don't really like the way the Angels are playing right now overall. The pitching is iffy. The hitting has been iffy. They're going to Chicago. Chicago just gave Cleveland all kinds of problems. I like what's going here. I'm going to go two out of three. Sorry to make that call. But it should be a fun series. I'm looking forward to a very fun series out there in Chicago. Okay, it's time for me to go. 
Again, you can follow us on Twitter at Talking Halos. You can search for our page on Facebook. It just says Talking Halos, or we have a group, the Talking Halos group. It's very small, very tidy, but come and talk with us. You can find me on Twitter at DC Paul. You can find the other guys on our crew. That's John Crane, Jake's Crane John on Twitter, and Jared Timms at Jared underscore Timms. You can find us on Spreaker, Google Play, all these different places. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you Sunday night. It's time to go. We're out of here. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history still in the make? The NBA only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.